Good morning. Good morning and welcome to C-Suite Conversations. I'm Richard Coughlin, the founder of this series. Mickey Quinones, the dean of the Robbins School, would typically be doing an introduction. He is out of town and, and send his regrets. I'm pleased to, to share that uh, our president, Kevin Halleck, is in the room, the university's uh, relatively new president. Thank you for joining us and, and welcome to the C-Suite Conversations, Kevin. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge a handful of folks, including Andy Miner, who puts these events on, has for 10 years now. And uh, she's standing in the back of the room, made this whole thing happen. So thank you very much, Andy. I want to acknowledge uh, the supporters of this program, starting with PNC Bank. Uh, James and Jeff and Brian and Steve are here. Sonia is on her way, I think from Northern Virginia, but stuck in traffic. And uh, Jermaine Johnson sends, sends his regards as well. We're also supported by Chamber RVA and, and uh, Kelly's here. Uh, thank you very much for, for all of your support. Now on to a conversation. Thanks, Jim, for joining us. And Miller, thank you for joining us as sure. well. Absolutely. In case you hadn't heard, uh, PGA Tour Champions is in town over at CCV. Uh, big event this week, the Dominion Energy Charity Classic. Uh, uh, what is known among players, I guess, is one of their favorite stops on tour. Is that about right, Jim? Yeah, um, great city. Uh, and for us, I think, you know, as a player, you look at the golf course first and foremost, and it's one of the best courses we play all year. So it's our first playoff event. So things are winding down for the season, but an exciting time because we're all, all trying to win the Charles Schwab Cup. Miller Jim is one of dozens of members of the tour. This is a member-centered uh, organization, sure. and I suspect you spend most of your days thinking about how can we keep those members content? Well, yes. I mean, that's obviously we, objective we hope number so. one. We hope so. <laughs> but in my mind, if we have uh, happy title sponsors, well-run tournaments, to some degree, the rest takes care of itself because the players have a place to play, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's just making sure that we play nice venues and uh, we, it's well supported in the community because uh, they want to play in front of spectators too. So when you add all that together, um, that's what I focus on week in and week out. Miller Brady's been involved with the PGA Tour one way or another since 1999. He had a background in the sports agency world. It was called Advantage International, I think, at that time. Correct, yeah. You guys might know it as Octagon uh, these Good days. History. You've had a, a, a number of roles with the PGA Tour, but you served as director of operations for this PGA Tour champions uh, for a number of years. And that really is almost like the COO role as I understand sure. it. What did you learn uh, during those years serving as COO, if you will, that, that put you in good place these days as the president of PGA Tour champions? Well, a little bit is what I was just mentioning, right? It's, it's the balance between your, your making sure your title sponsors meeting their goals and objectives in the community so that they wanna continue the partnership uh, and, and that the tournaments have a runway for growth, you're raising money for charity, you're making an impact in the community, uh, and then helping the tournaments focus on sales. I think Jeff Fitch is here from the tournament and we have a team uh, that will help them analyze what they're doing each and every year and how do we improve it? Because if you stay the same, you're going backwards, right? So we wanna make an impact every year and, and grow. And one of the things that's changed on tour is that now certain players have names attached to tournaments. <laughs> Furick and Friends happened uh, down in Florida just two weeks ago. Uh, Jim and his wife Tabitha put on an event. You had had an event of a kind called Furick and Friends for 10 years, as I understand it. But talk about the uh, growth to uh, being part of the tour now. Yeah, it was a, it was a much smaller event. So we had a, a charity event that was basically a party and a concert on a Sunday night wrapped into an 18-hole uh, pro-am or uh, we had a lot of celebrities that had come in uh, from around to entertain our guests. And so we kind of had this pro celebrity am, uh, a day and a half you know, golf tournament that was basically six to eight months of work for, for my wife and, and our family uh, to get ready. And we had a nice niche. We were raising, we got it to where we were raising about a half a million dollars for charity every year. And you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful, but we also realized, and I think everyone realizes when you, when you start to help those folks in your community in need, you realize there's such a greater need and we didn't have a lot of room for growth, as you're talking about. We, we had a niche. We were going to raise a half a million dollars a year, but there was no way. You know, we, we had a 27-hole facility. We had as many pro-am groups as we could put out there. We couldn't raise any more money. And, and at the time, the PJ Tour had the Players' Championship in, in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida, uh, in Atlantic Beach, right up the road. Uh, there was the Corn Ferry Tour Championship. And when that event moved, to Indiana, I think within 12 months, I sat in Miller's office and, and you know, talked to my wife about, do you think it's possible? 
can we take on this role? It's going to be a lot of work. Uh, but would you like to host the Champions Tour event? And you know, we talked to Miller about it as far as, you know, we got his blessing. We kind of tried to move it as far on the other side of town, away from the players as we could to create our own identity, to kind of not be Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida, but Jacksonville, and that's, that's where I live. And, uh, and really the reason was because now the sky's the limit. We have the opportunity to grow. We have an opportunity to build. And we had our first event. We now have a platform to build on. We, you know, we'll check and realize, you know, we probably overspent here. We probably could uh, sell more there. And, and, uh, but we, we're going to raise close to a million dollars this year in our first year. And now we have a, the ability to grow and, and uh, ultimately raise more money for charity. So um, a lot of work. Uh, and, and when I say that, not necessarily for me, but for my wife. <laughs> she, did, uh, she, she would be considered the executive director of the event or she runs our charitable foundation. We have a very small team of about five people total, uh, four that are paid plus Tabitha. And um, it was a lot of work, but uh, very fulfilling. And, and for year one, we did, we did quite well. So we're excited about it and we have something to build on. I knew, I knew Tabitha was engaged uh, and working extremely hard on the event, you know, all year leading up to it. But I really knew during tournament week when I received a text from her probably at 1230 at night. And then when I woke up, I had another text at like 430 in the morning. And I'm thinking, I don't even know if she slept last <laughs> night. She had one night where I went to bed at 930 because I was just wiped. I woke up at maybe 630 in the morning. I'd been events all week and I needed to get some sleep. And she was already out. She definitely was still entertaining folks when I went to bed. And she was showered and out the door when I woke up. So I don't. That was that same night, probably. I'm not sure. She was at Walmart picking up supplies for, uh, for our corporate hospitality on 18. That got kind of wind blown and rained in on Friday, and and she needed to. Uh, kind of redo some supplies. Corporate hospitality is a big deal at every event. We'll see it this weekend out at CCV. Jim, that kind of event comes about largely because of a long-term relationship you've had with Constellation. It represents the kind of thing that exists on this, this tour. Once you had sat in Miller's office, figured out this could probably be a, a real deal, then conversations begin with Constellation around the same time and, and they uh, step up to support you. I think Circle K did as well. Yeah, so we, we talked to Miller. You know, we got the blessing, okay, you can build the event. Now what? And you know, first and foremost, you need to go out and find a title sponsor, someone that's gonna support the event, support the community, be real excited about it. Um, I had a long relationship with Constellation. That's the first company we went to. They had a, they used to title the senior player, so Miller was very aware of the company and the folks there. Um, you know, we had dinner, kind of talked it over, talked about building this tournament with us, and, and they were on board. Uh, so first and foremost, finding a, a great title sponsor, someone that's really, really interested in your event, and the event is great. Second is finding a wonderful golf course. And so, you know, the event here, you've got uh, CCV, which is a great, great facility, and Dominion Energy, who supports this area and this event so well. Um, you know, it, it's, that's what makes everything go round. That's, that's uh, extremely important. And we were able to do that probably in the first six months where we kind of got those two on board. And, and from there, you can build an event. The late Tom Farrell was a guest in this series uh, in 2018-19. We sat uh, actually across uh, campus. A few hundred folks had come to, to listen to, to us have a conversation for an hour or two. The pro-am that happens today and tomorrow is named after uh, sure. Tom Farrell. He, he really made a difference in this community in so many ways. Do you want to speak to the conversations you all had as this, uh, this tournament was really being formed, uh, the idea about what Central Virginia could, could benefit from? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, um, the idea was formed by the former commissioner of the PGA Tour, Commissioner Fincham, Tim Fincham. Also a guest in this series a few years okay, ago. Okay, sure. Yep. And, and Tim and Tom knew each other. And Tim had, we were developing the playoffs at the time, and, and Tim had the idea that, you know what, we should go talk to Tom Farrell and play in Richmond. And so we had the conversation. Tom was interested and intrigued at being a, you know, avid golfer that he is. And the conversation quickly went from, okay, if we do this, how do we impact the community? How do we raise money for charity? How do we involve the military? So they were, it was all the right pillars, right, to make, to make it a successful tournament. Uh, and he was all in. And from the time that he committed to the event, it just grew every single year, right? Jeff and, and the sales team uh, worked with Dominion, the community, whether it was PNC or, or the 120 partners, I believe now, for the tournament. Uh, just they all leaned into the tournament and Tom uh, he relished in that 
He loved coming out. I remember, I think two years, three years ago, he's playing in the Pro-Am. It is pouring down rain. I mean, raining sideways. And I looked at our tournament director and I said, we gotta pull him off the golf course. He's like, yeah, we gotta pull him. I said, before we do that, let's go see if Mr. Farrell wants to, to come off the golf course first. So we went and asked him and he, sa he said, nope, we're playing. <laughs> so we, we kept playing until he wanted to stop. Incredible. That's how much he loves golf and loves the tournament. Yeah, there are so many of these stories uh, as you make your way around uh, this tour of communities that are being impacted. You talked about the work that you all are doing in Jacksonville. Obviously, we know what's, what's going on in Richmond. But really, this tour is about making an impact on dozens of communities across the country. It's a traveling circus of a kind, perhaps not quite the circus that the PGA Tour itself is. Sure. Uh, there's a more relaxed feel. Let's talk about the competitive spirit that uh, exists here on this, this tour, Jim, and, and how it compares with that tour where you're still spending a bit of time with the, the young guys. It's still, uh, it's competitive. Um, I guess the, the view of the champion store is that we're, you know, we're all over 50 and we go out and play our 18 holes and then we, we go to the clubhouse and everyone has a beer, a glass of wine and we talk and, you know, I just say after the round on Friday, Saturday, Friday and Saturday, you know, go to the practice facility and, you know, the range is full of folks chipping and putting. These guys work hard and they're really uh, have a lot of pride in their craft and what they've done. You've got a lot of Hall of Famers and so it's extremely competitive, but I, I think also the guys realize that it's a little bit of a second lease on life. There's no other sport where you can play after 50, where you can still be competitive, you can still compete, uh, play a game for a living. Uh, and with that, I think they're a little bit more of a showman-like. You know, they, they like to interact with the fans. They do a really good job in the pro-ams and they interact with our sponsors. And, and because of that, we can, we can build those platforms, we can build these events. And, and I think, um, you know, for our, for our sponsors and for the sales teams, it's a way to say, hey, look, you know, the buy-in is a lot less than it is at a PJ Tour event. But you're getting Fred Couples, Bernhard Longer, uh, Davis Love. You're getting a lot of Hall of Famers, and you're getting them engaged. And so I think the return is, is quite large. And, uh, and I think if, you know, you kind of get a foot in the door and you get some of those sponsors involved and they realize how much they get, uh, it, it, it really uh, it turns out to be a win-win. And so we have the opportunity to play for a living, but... We also have an, an opportunity to engage with our sponsors and, and uh, make sure they have a good time. We focus a lot here in the business school on partnerships and uh, recognizing important stakeholders and operating your business with those stakeholders in mind. We've really been talking about one stakeholder group, two, if you will, the players and then, then the sponsors. The communities are a third stakeholder. Let's talk for a moment about the media as a stakeholder and the viewers uh, that are beneficiaries of, of the media coverage. So when Tim Fincham was here a handful of years ago, the PGA Tour was involved in the television negotiations at the time. He shared a little bit on stage and then we spent an hour in my office where he told me the real deal of what was going on with the <laughs> negotiations uh, in the tour, a heck of an education for me. How important is it that that viewer uh, is getting the same kind of enhanced experience uh, these days and how do new digital platforms open up uh, possibilities for you as you look forward? Well. It's a, it's a great question. I mean, for us, the, the ability to put the product on television is paramount. Uh, it's important to the players. It's important to the title sponsors. It's not the most important because um, we really focus on the B2B side of our, our sponsorships, but it is an enhanced element. Um, you know, we have the targeted demographic, uh, really high net worth, so it works well for the particular title. Um, but at, as we evolve and the digital platform becomes more important. Um, we start a new cycle of um, agreements next year. And as part of that, every one of our tournaments, I don't even know if I've said this to, to Jim and Tabitha yet, but every one of our tournaments is gonna have a minimum of one hour of digital coverage before we come live on the air. So uh, it, that's how important it is to us. Mark Lazarus was here just a few weeks ago as a guest in this series, okay. president of NBC Television, so he talked about it from the other side. One of the things that he told us was that uh, his all-time favorite event, his all-time favorite moment, given the role that he has, is standing on the first tee at the Ryder Cup. He said it, there's nothing like it, and he's, Mark Lazarus has been involved with, with sports and with television for a lot of years. You experienced that as a player many times. Uh, you experienced it very, very recently as a vice captain of the victorious U.S. team. I have a bunch of questions about what came together uh, this year among that team, and I'd like to explore some leadership topics if we could, Jim. Sure. 
Your vice captain, Steve Stricker, is the captain. The other vice captains include uh, Davis Love III, Phil Mickelson, uh, Zach Johnson was another one, and I'm forgetting one. I'm quizzing you. Fred Couples. Fred Couples. Fred Couples. I'm curious to know, in some ways, the six of you uh, resemble kind of a top management team in a corporation. So you're strategizing, I suspect, even from the time that, that captain's picks are, are being considered. Is that right? You're involved in that, that conversation yeah. as well. The original team was, was Strick. Strick was the captain, and he had Davis, Zach, and I as kind of the vice captains. Phil and, and Fred came along much later in the, in the conversation. So uh, throughout the last 18 months, Strick was kind of bouncing some ideas off. But he's a pretty quiet guy, and, and he had a lot of experience as a captain. He's, he was the President's Cup captain. He'd been a vice captain in the Ryder Cup a number of times. So uh, every couple of months, he might bounce a couple ideas off us. I've got these ideas. Here's what I'm thinking about. Here, here's kind of the idea that I'm trying to form. Um, and then as we got closer to the Ryder Cup, those emails and questions came in a little bit more. And um, yeah, I think for a lot of us, if you go back 10 years, we never grew up in, in that business world. So we've always had to worry about a very small team, you know, uh, our caddy. Uh, for some, it might be your teacher, your physio, your you know, the teams tend to get bigger. But my team basically growing up was my, my instructor and my caddy. And so... Uh, it was a very small, small deal. I never sat in a, in a meeting room and, and had to really think about how we were going to set up, uh, you know, our strategy and how we were going to work as a team. And, and kind of being a vice captain, I've kind of learned. Some of those, we did it on the fly. Each of us had a talent or a knack that we were good at, and we kind of ran with that idea. Sometimes the captain would divvy up and divide and conquer uh, with those talents. Uh, but we've gotten a lot better at it. And, and so when we talk about us as a Ryder Cup team and a strategy, one of the things we've done a lot better in the last 10 years is really done a good job from our leadership, from the, the captain down and kind of dividing and conquering with, uh, with the different tasks at hand. And so I, I think a, a great captain, first and foremost, kind of lines up his vice captains and doesn't necessarily choose them from who's his best friend, but who's going to be really good at each role. You know, Freddie Couples, what he's good at is amazing. Uh, he is the most nervous, antsy. I know he looks like calm and smooth and on the outside. He is the most nervous person I've ever met. But somehow when you stick him in a room of people, he makes everyone around him, just he puts them at ease. And so you put him in a room with 12 guys and, and everyone goes to the first tee just like, they're just calm. They're, he has a way of, even though he's nervous, you know, he sends them out, they're calm, and he looks, he goes, oh my God, are we gonna win a point? <laughs> like, he's just, he's just wow. the most nervous guy I've ever met, but he calms everyone, and it's great, you know? Other guys are good at statistics. You know, Phil loved in kind of the deep dive into the statistics with our, with our team, and you know, I, you know, I'm kind of a details-oriented guy, and you know, Davis loves kind of big picture, and so we just each kind of divvied out our own, um, our own little knack for Strick, and, and he kind of put us in areas that he knew we'd be good at. Scotty Scheffler ends up getting a captain's pick, even though he's never won on tour. So just as a kind of a case study, I, I, I study decision-making, I teach decision-making. I think it's a fascinating decision because there is a risk involved. We need, we need to send some guys to your class, actually, <laughs> for, for a captaincy. I, I should have taken the class no, before no. I was captain. Well, it worked out pretty well this year. But, but if, if you don't mind just elaborating a little bit, because uh, – uh, Scotty Scheffler ends up not losing a, a point, not losing a match. I think he, he won a couple and, and tied one. Uh, but that's a, that is viewed by the outsiders as a risky pick. I'm not asking you who else was considered and why you chose him, but what did you see in him at the time as a, as a top management team that led you to say, he's good, we're good? Well, I think it's a number of different things you look at. Um, the captain is, you know, ultimately the captain's bouncing ideas off of everyone. He's bouncing ideas off. The players are already on his team, the eight guys, or the six guys in this case that made the team, uh, his five vice captains. Uh, he's ultimately got to make the decision. Uh, you've got a stats team that's giving you ideas, but when I was captain, what I was looking at a lot of is, uh, you know, as vice captains, most of us were on the Champions Tour, so we knew a lot of the stalwarts. We knew the Dustin Johnsons, the Brooks Kepkas. We've played a lot with them. We weren't real well versed on Scotty Scheffler, and, and I, I knew a little bit about his game, but I wasn't real confident that I knew a lot about his game. Um, so now you're leaning down to your next six guys, and a lot of the guys on that team, in fact, all six, were 
pretty adamant that you know you need Scotty Scheffler on the team. He's he's got a lot of guts. Um, he's not going to back down. Uh, and then you start looking at the golf course, right? And what type of player? How is Strick going to set the golf course up? What type of player will excel there and and succeed? And and his game fit that golf course very well. You know, do you take? You know, does his game fit? Maybe Le Golf National in Paris, maybe not as much, but does it fit whistling straights and the way we're going to set it up? Yes, he's stereotypically the player you want there. Um, so you've got a lot of players on the team that want him there. You've got a stats team that says he fits the course. Uh, we know that he fits the golf course very well. And then you start looking at pairings and you start looking at, you know, you have guys that are easy to pair and guys that aren't easy to pair. It's just it, the way it is. Um, one of my one of my strengths and weaknesses, I think, in playing, playing in Ryder Cups is I was always that wheel guy. Like, I had a different partner almost every Ryder Cup because captains realized that my game kind of could go along with a lot of different people and my personality could go along. So if he had someone that was difficult to pair or if he just had someone left over, he could kind of plug me in and knew that I would, I would kind of get along fine and I would adhere to that person. What does so. difficult mean? What is difficult to pair? <laughs> no, what is difficult? You said difficult. What does it mean? Difficult to player. be a difficult player. What does that player? mean? Difficult pairing? <laughs> uh, Phil Mickelson. <laughs> difficult pairing. Um, you know, he's long and wild. He plays his own style of game. No one else plays like Phil. Right. Uh, and then he's got a very dominant personality, right? And so you need someone. You cannot put another alpha with Phil. He needs to lead the conversation. He needs to be the one putting his arm around him. Keegan Bradley, perfect guy to pair him with, right? He's kind of like playing in his first Ryder Cup at Medina, uh, really likes Phil, needs someone to kind of put his arm around him, and was a perfect pairing. You know, Tiger Woods didn't work out so well. You know, two <laughs> alphas, and, and so you don't put those two together. Um, so Phil knows that he's a difficult pair. Um, it, it's real simple. Um, so those guys you kind of figure out. No secret, I played with Phil a little bit. <laughs> um, so Tiger, difficult pairing. I played with Tiger some. Um, you know, it's you know it's hard to step into Tiger's shoes. He's everyone is watching that match. Every shot, every person on the golf course, everyone is looking at that. And, and trying to live a day in Tiger's shoes is very difficult. And a lot of players didn't like being in that situation. So we had to find someone that could handle it. I did it. Strick did it. Um, relatively successfully. Other guys did not. You yeah. know, and Tiger's record wasn't very good in the Ryder Cup. You know, maybe he didn't play his best, but it was also very difficult for someone to step in and play with them. And so the guys that played with Tiger didn't play very well. I'm thinking about uh, the business, uh, members of the business community that are here and the lessons that you just delivered in the last three or four minutes. There are a bunch of startups that face this choice about whether they should bring their friends on top management team when they're just getting going. You've said probably not be really smart about the, the roles that each of them are gonna play and the strengths and, and maybe lean against bringing friends on early in a startup. You've talked a lot about mentorship uh, and in these pairings uh, reflect, I think, uh, a very similar kind of thing that goes on in small teams in certain companies of, well, we, we better be careful about, about how we pair them up. There was also a really valuable lesson though about Decision-making ultimately comes to the captain, but in, in the story you just told, Steve Strick was very good about allowing input from anywhere and everywhere, it sounded like, before rendering that decision. Uh, so even relatively new members of the Ryder Cup team are invited to, to share their voice, their perspective on these kinds of things. The guys that were on the yeah, team, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, but yes. even if they're relatively new. Yeah, but I want to be really clear that um, the, the captains like to listen they want to hear your opinion they want to hear the player's opinion they want to hear the vice captain's opinion but the decisions are all made by the captain you know steve stricker made his six captain selections he listened to the information but ultimately uh it was his decision and and he chose those six players to be his he chose the five vice captains and he chose the six players to fill in as his uh, captain's pick so um you know, I, I think the captain has to be really good at taking all this information and deciphering it and eventually. So there's, there's a theory out there that we listen too much to the players or that there's too much noise. And, but I, I think it's good to get everyone's opinion, to get a feel for the general ideas that people put out there. But make no mistake, the captain is the one. And, and Steve made all those decisions and did a great job. Archived videos of this series are available online. We've done 60 or 65 of them over the last 10 or 11 years. And one of the things that I like to ask relatively new CEOs is, you know, what was the first realization 
that, that you were the CEO, and very often they'll tell stories of being promoted, like you were, Miller, into a position where you'd sat at a different chair, same sure. table, different chair, and that when the meeting ends, you come to realize the decision's now mine. Right. So I might throw that question to you and, and ask if you had one of those moments of, now you are the president of PGA Tour Champions, not the senior vice president. Yeah, great question. I mean, in my prior role as senior vice president or COO, you know, I felt like I was helping guide and make those decisions, although it wasn't ultimately my decision. But, you know, once I was in that role, I, the biggest difference is that the attention that the players would look at you and go, all right, you've got to make decisions now. Are you making the right decision? And it may not be the right decision in the players' minds at times, right? So there's a balance. Mm -hmm. and, and at the end of the day, I'm trying to make the best decision for our business and how to move our business forward. Um, and for example, probably one of the hardest decisions I made a couple years ago, we had a title sponsor uh, that was okay, not great. And the event was okay, not great. And we made a hard decision that the event needed to go away. Um, and there was risk involved with that. There was risk that the players wouldn't accept that, they wouldn't understand that. Uh, but at the time, it was the right decision for us to properly set the tone to move our business forward, yep. which is really where we are today, which is a fantastic place. Question? Yes. So, no. <laughs> so when we talk about difficult players, um, let's talk about tournaments and what makes a great tournament but not great, or good but not great. Like, you know, now I get to put you on the spot. Yeah, sure. Well, that's that's somewhat easy because um, just because I have it, a tournament, I want to yeah. always be great. I don't want to be that good <laughs> but not great. It it starts knowing that you have a, a, a well-run tournament staff that's engaged. Uh, with the event, engaged with the community. Uh, they're selling. Jeff Fitch does a great job with all the partners in this community. You're playing uh, hopefully one of the best golf courses in that community. Uh, you have a title sponsor uh, that's engaged, but that you also have a, a purse that is reflective of our product. And, and that's probably where I was more focused on at the time is that you know, we had a purse that needed to step up the title needed to invest in that in order to move our, our business forward. Otherwise, I felt like we would keep, you know, just dragging them along. Mm -hmm. And that was not the right move for us. You've both really talked about scaling a business. Uh, when you take the, the little tournament you had and turn it into a big tournament, you were really describing this challenge of scaling up because you saw a need in the community and thought, how can we raise more money? In your decision you just described, that's about scaling up the business. And, sure. and that's something we... There are only so many weeks in the year. Uh, there are only so many holes on a golf course where you can put a, a corporate tent. Right. Although you're making those up all the time, right, Jeff? Uh, and so you're, you're creating these new, but, but if you don't mind uh, describing how scaling up works in, in your business, how do you make sure that the, the tour five years from now is, is considerably better than it is today? Yeah, so I think that's, uh, there, there's two parts to that answer. One is making sure that we have a schedule that makes sense for our tour. And what I mean by that is that we, we're not a tour that needs to play you know, 35 tournaments a year. We strategically play somewhere between, call it 25 and, and 28 events a year uh, to where we can play two to three weeks in a row, take a week off, two to three in a row, take a week off. And when we do that, and we do that by you know, strategy, most guys are playing every week. You know, Jim's not gonna play 25, 28 tournaments anyway, but he may play 20, one, 22, 23. So now they're getting to see our top players on a more regular basis. We don't, and I don't mean this in a bad way, we don't necessarily have a strength of field issue on our tour like the PGA Tour does, right? They compete week in and week out for the top players. Our guys are playing, right? And, and they're competing week in and week out, which makes all of our sponsors uh, happy and, and they're in a good place. Now, when I fast forward to where we wanna be in five years, it's, it's growing those tournaments growing the prize money for those tournaments and elevating the stature. Uh, and we're in a place now where we can start to do that. One way to do that pretty quickly would be to change the, the age from 50 to 48 or 45. That is the age at which wow. young guys uh, get eligible for, for the tour. Is it ever considered? <laughs> is there any discussion about it? So I, I, I knock on Jim's shoulder there because uh, Jim, had, I think it was your first tournament. You, when we sat down and had this conversation. Early, early in my Champions yeah, Tour early career, so absolutely. The, that topic had come up a handful of times over the years, but 
it was rearing its head again um, when Jim first came out. And so I wanted his advice, his thoughts on it, uh, because I had my opinion, but I wanted to make sure that, that what I was thinking was, you know, the opinion of some of our top players. And it was, for me, the guys that move the needle and are the top golfers at 45, they're not gonna play our tour anyway. They're not ready, right? They're still competitive on the regular tour. The money is so significantly higher on the regular tour that they're not ready for the move yet. Sometimes they're not ready at age 50, right? Look at Phil. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, so in my mind, that was, that was really a non-starter. Um, and so we had discussions with what's called our player advisory council yep, I wanted to talk uh, about, about that, our player directors, and they all came to the same conclusion. You wouldn't find one player on the Champions Tour, and I mean not one, that would support lowering the age. And so by running a tournament, um, one of the things that I think that we have going for the Champions Tour is, you know, on the, on a, it's a totally different model from the PGA Tour. PGA Tour, I think, has 47 events in 43 weeks. So let's take Dustin Johnson, Roy McIlroy, Justin Thomas, you know, your, your best players that push the needle. They're only going to play 20 to 25 events a year. There's 47 tournaments. Now, I realize they have a bunch of superstars, but a lot of their fields are, I don't know if watered down is the right word, but the best players aren't playing every week. They can't. Uh, they can't play that many events. The reason why we have 25 to 28 events is that we have a very strong field every week because our guys want to play 20 to 25 events. So every week we have a very similar field. There's good and bad with that. Uh, you know, the, the, the tournaments aren't in competition against each other right. for the most part. There's good and bad to that. Yeah. But, um, but I can tell my sponsor, you know, he, he's, well, who's going to play? Well, Most everyone. <laughs> you know, the three guys we're worried about are maybe like Mickelson, who's still a part-timer. Stricker's been kind of a part-timer because of the Ryder Cup. Maybe Freddie Couples is winding down. He still pushes the needle. Other than that, you're pretty much going to get everyone. They're all going to be here. And so um, if you lower the age to 45 and we go back, I, I was still ranked top five in the world at the age of 45. I wasn't coming to the Champions Tour yet. And having a part-time player isn't very beneficial to the Champions Tour. Having a guy bounce back and forth, so showing up at the Schwab Cup playoffs and not having a lot of your players there is not beneficial. It doesn't look good for our umbrella sponsor. Um, you know, I, I, one of the things, I guess now I'm happy. I wasn't sure that I was going to kind of jump in the deep end and play the Champions Tour full-time, but I am, and I'm, I'm real happy now looking at it. I mean, for to have guys turn 50 and then come out to the Champions Tour like a Patty Harrington and he's doing the same and he kind of wants to come full bore next year and yeah. play full time, it only makes us stronger and, and better. But I think if you lower it to 45 and you guys have guys bouncing back and forth, my fear is that it's not going to make the tour stronger. It's going to go the reverse and it's going to actually weaken uh, the product. There's a bit of a but, supply chain issue there. I mean, in terms of supply and demand. Yeah, but and by, I mean, we did a long exhaustive analysis on this entire process um, and it sounds simple but we made sure that we had the right data behind it uh, to properly make our decision but to Jim's point you know the guys that have turned 50 over the past uh, year and a half not only have come out but they're fully embracing and supporting this tour whether it's Darren Clark, Ernie Els, Mike Weir, Jim Furyk I mean and Patrick Harrington uh, David Duvall's turning 50. KJ Choi. KJ Choi. We're just, we're very fortunate that the guys are fully embracing it right now and playing on a consistent basis. Brand is such an important part of that, but you raised uh, the importance of data as well. The Robin School launched a, a new major in analytics not so long ago. Uh, the golf teams, the men's and women's golf teams are here. A number of them are business majors. This, this idea about data has become so crucial. And I have a couple of questions. I'm going to start with you if you don't mind. You've described your own approach to playing golf as being mechanical in some ways. As you map your strategy around the golf course, that piece of it is mechanical. But my sense, Jim, is that when you get playing, you're trying to get rid of all the data that, that might have uh, clouded your judgment uh, in, in some ways. So you like to map it out in advance, but make sure that you're not relying too heavily on it during the round. I think my approach to attacking a golf course is mechanical as far as the way I, I pick and choose my way around the golf course. The way I swing the club is anything but mechanical <laughs> and, and all by feel. Um, I don't use a lot of data or analytics for 
it's, it's quite common on the PGA Tour. Um, you know, there's folks out there that, you know, they may have a team of three or four players and they all use one guy analytically and he'll tell them that, you know, you need to attack the par fives this week, that you need to go for them in two more often than lay up. Uh, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And he gives them three or four things each week that they have to be ready for. Um, you know, because data shown in the past, the guy that won the tournament did these four things. Sure. Um, you know, for me, it's always been more of a put in a situation. Some weeks, you know, I'm hitting it great and I have every confidence in the world that I'm going to hit that three wood over the water and knock it on a par five. And some weeks I don't have it and I know it and I'm going to lay up and rely on my wedge game because that's my strength. So uh, instead of following data from what someone did in the past, I kind of want to follow my gut feeling a little bit and, and play the way I know best. So uh, I'm not very data driven yeah. compared to most. I like looking at stats maybe at the end of a year okay. and look at a broad picture rather than on a weekly or monthly basis. I think they're a little biased at times. Um, I also think uh, that the guys at the PJ Tour don't want to hear this, but uh, I think there's some flaws in our, in our statistics and even our shots gained. Um, and I hope someone's ears are burning back in Ponte Vedra. Um, but there's a few, there's a few instances where uh, I think the stats are off. Um, and so to look at it from a weekly or monthly basis, I think is difficult. But, you know, overall yearly basis, I, I think there's a lot you can learn. I don't know if you saw Sandy sneak in, but Cap Tech, the CapTech guys are here. So I know they, they help out with a little bit of that work uh, sure. on, the, on the backside of Great. Shot Link as well. Great. So, <laughs> no, no, no. So, my mouth again. <laughs> no, you've given them an opportunity. Uh, no, that's, that's I'm sure, how, how they would. Uh, they know there's that. a weakness there. Oh, I know. <laughs> I've heard a little bit of that, that conversation. The data, from your perspective, Miller, and, and uh, how it can inform the kinds of decisions that you make, small decisions and larger decisions. Well, the, you know, the, as we track data, uh, we try to make sure we're putting the right uh, analytics behind the value that our sponsors are receiving week in and week out, and how do we how do we grow that value? Um, and what we've done in the past three years is we've invested heavily into the social media arena. Yep. We hired a full-time social media guy three years ago. We brought another individual on to to help him, and we've recently hired a third because. Uh, the value we receive back from that has been fantastic. They're very creative in what they do with our players, but it drives value to the tournaments and the title sponsors. I mean, uh, the more value we provide to the tournaments, the communities, and the title sponsors, the easier it is for us to renew. And that's the end goal for us is to renew our title sponsors and grow prize money for the players. Uh, when Mark Lazarus was here a few weeks ago, he talked about the challenges that networks are having with the Nielsen ratings, that the Nielsen ratings don't seem to reflect what's really going on. Nowhere near. Say more about what you think the future of that conversation uh, looks like. Look, I, I'm completely, I, I don't even like this conversation because I'm biased that the ratings are nowhere near what they, they could be or should be. Because, you know, you put a box in a house to determine if they're watching a particular channel. For us, in our sport, that's, it's not tracking every sports bar in the country. Every golf facility in the country has on the golf channel every weekend. And it may be on mute, it may not be on mute, but it's still showing the tournament. It's showing the title sponsor acknowledgement within the telecast, and none of that gets picked up, right? And until that truly happens, I don't, I don't buy into the value. So, like for us, I get very frustrated when we have a conversation with a title sponsor and they're turning everything over to their media agency to, to evaluate. And I'm like, well, that's a joke. I mean, you know, so we're constantly fighting that and trying, that's why we try to provide as much value as we can. In some of the advisory work that we do with firms, it's about building in-house capabilities when you don't find the capability on the outside. Right. It sure sounds like NBC Sports is going to invest in developing its own capability. Might the PGA Tour do a similar kind of well, thing? So we, we do have, uh, we have a department that is focused on that, more so on the, the regular tour. We get a little bit of the assistance yep. that we need when we need it. Uh, but, but they're also, you know, they're putting together our domestic reach, our international reach, the number of impressions, knowing that uh, the title or the media agency will water it down some, uh, but at least we're showing, you know, here's what we feel the value is. The next thing I'd like to talk about, we've got about 20 minutes left. Um, is something that struck me in my research. Now, I only learned that Jim Jerk was coming a few days ago, so. Uh, that's my fault. No, that's fine. You did your research, so I've you've asked a lot of, you've picked up a lot of information that I'm very shocked that you did. 
<laughs> the questions. Good thing I didn't let, let them know earlier. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the concept I'd like to cover is one about humility. So. Um, for 12 years, I ran the MBA program here and was often asked what makes for a good MBA student. And I always said it was, it was curiosity and humility, that the combination of, of those two things is, is what keeps you drive, driving toward learning, really. Um, humility came in the form of you caddying for Tom Watson uh, in Japan. Uh, so I wanted to, to have you tell that story to this audience not so long ago. Uh, you, you found yourself, while, while president of PGA Tour Champions, sure. putting on a rain suit and, and carrying a bag. Wow, yeah. you. You did your research. So we were playing uh, our second event in Japan, MasterCard Japan Championship. And first, uh, that's actually the second round of the tournament. Uh, it's raining. It's probably 12 minutes before Tom's tea time, and someone said, Tom's caddy's not here. What are we going to do? And I said, well, let's go talk to him, see if what's going on. Um, walk to the putting green, and it's still raining. And I said, Tom, where's your caddy? He goes, I don't know, he's not answering his phone. I'm sure he's back at the hotel, which was an hour and a half away in downtown Tokyo. And I said, well, do you have anyone in mind? And he's like, I, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I said, well, I'll caddy for you. And I thought he would say, no, 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 we'll, we'll find somebody else. And he goes, that'd be great. <laughs> and it's like the dog that catches the truck. I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do now? It's raining. All right, I'm going to run. I'm going to go put on a rain suit. I'll meet you at the first tee. I, got, I need an umbrella. I need dry towels. So luckily, Tom was fantastic. I meet him at the first tee. I'm trying to you know, give him a club, hold the umbrella, carry the towels. He never asked for yardage because I wasn't going to be able to give him a yardage anyway. Um, so it, he had a big staff bag. And it's what you call a one strap. You guys would probably know this, not a two strap bag which is a lot more difficult to carry. So I finished the round and I had to go straight and have my back worked on because I was, I was done. Uh, but it was fantastic. Tom actually played pretty well. He, he, I think he shot two under, probably could have shot five under. Um, I raked a few bunkers along the way. It was just a, a great experience. And I think the best part is that I gained a lot of respect from the other caddies yeah. that were out there that, that I did that. Did it, did it rain all day? It stopped on, I think, the 11th hole. Wow. There's and then no, got really no humid. no harder day for a caddy yeah. than, than a rain day. So yeah. that's, you, you got the full, yeah. full boat. Reminds me you know, of the, the series where the, the CEO goes undercover. I mean, you weren't <laughs> undercover, although you were in I a race. I was far from undercover. But, but the main point I wanted to make was the importance of you in the role that you have, getting inside the ropes that close to, to players and caddies and, and seeing it through their eyes. I've got to believe that was beneficial to you in a number of ways. Yeah, look, I mean, I don't, no matter what, you get your hands dirty. doesn't matter what the task is. And that was just another example of really trying to view it from another side, yeah. right? How do our caddies view it? What can we do to improve the caddy experience each week? Because um, the caddies are an extension of the player. So when the caddies have a caddy dining area and their food is not what it needs to be, that's a, that's a problem, right? We work with uh, each one of our tournaments to make sure they're providing the right atmosphere uh, the right level of service for our caddies. In the negotiations class that I teach, we talk a lot about the importance of perspective taking, of d devoting time to understanding what the world looks like from the other party's perspective so that you can then make your pitch uh, in that regard. On humility with you, let me just build a bridge if I could. Uh, some of you know I was on the sales team at Pebble Beach from 1990 to 93, and then I decided to go to grad school and study decision making. But I was going to Tucson, Arizona to study uh, decision making, a place that you know well. You and I didn't overlap. You left in 92 or 93? 92. And I arrived in 93. But I decided that I didn't want to leave the golf world entirely, so I actually caddied up at La Paloma uh, okay. at the uh, country club up there. You were in Tucson uh, as an undergraduate on the golf team, uh, and uh, this was a team that won the national championship in 1992. The humility piece that I really picked up as I studied that was your progression from, from freshman year to senior year and the number of uh, really talented golfers that joined the team. Can you describe the evolution of the team and your role in the team from first year to, to your final year? Uh, wow. Um, you know, I guess I view, you know, we, we were an interesting golf team. I will say that right off the bat. We had a, a coach that was very hands-off. Um, it was more about, you know, golf, recruiting and golf's always, I think our uh, athletic director put it, uh, 
It's about Johnny's and Joe's, not X's and O's, meaning that uh, you're trying to recruit good players. Uh, Arizona always had a very, uh, at the time, I guess not always, they're, they're rebuilding now and, and doing quite well again, but they, they had some years where they struggled. But at the time, they had a very successful program. Uh, a lot of kids wanted to go to the University of Arizona. Our coach recruited well and brought, brought folks in. Um, at the time, it, was, it felt a little bit more like an individual sport. I mean, we, we uh, played against each other. We were close. We were friendly. Uh, I, it's, it was kind of my fraternity was the golf team. Yep. But we were trying to beat each other, I mean, like cats and dogs every day. And that was kind of that competition, that fighting and clawing and scratching and practicing every day against great competition is what made us all better. Um, but it was an interesting dynamic team-wise. And so, uh, you know, freshman year, I think you're getting your feet wet. You're kind of trying to follow the lead. We didn't have a lot of veteran players my freshman year. We didn't have a lot of great leaders my freshman year. So uh, the young players kind of, you know, we kind of grouped up and hung out and had a great time and, and ended up, you know, kind of getting better as the year went on. I think we ended up finishing sixth in NC2As that year, which was, you know, we, we definitely played over our heads. Uh, my sophomore year, I was kind of the number one player on the team and felt a little bit more like a leader, um, trying to get that team uh, motivated. Uh, I, I think we ended up finishing third in NC2As that year. Um, my junior year, we were ranked number one for pretty much the entire year, and it was a year that I struggled a little bit and, and uh, had some, I don't know, personal issues. I just It was kind of a year to grow up, we'll say, in college. Everyone needs one of those, and I didn't play very well. I actually got left off the national championship team. I was playing six by the end of the year, played terrible. Um, and there was a realization that uh, eventually I'd want to turn pro and I wasn't even starting on my college team. So uh, it was kind of a rude awakening. Uh, the team that year didn't mesh very well, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, we never really hung out together. We kind of went our separate ways. Uh, that national championship team was ranked number one and they missed the cut at NC2As. Uh, so they didn't finish in the top 15. And then senior year, we kind of came back together. Uh, we had a transfer that came in from uh, Oklahoma State that was a great kid, Harry Rudolph. Um, he was my roommate on the road. He was kind of the glue a little bit for the team, believe it or not, kind of an outsider came in and kind of pulled us all back together. Um, you know, my role that year, again, still trying to beat the pants off everyone on the team. And, yeah. uh, but we, we, I think we're closer and we were ranked number one for a lot of that year as well. Um, we had an interesting dynamic and probably one that I wouldn't suggest for most teams and that we were very individualistic. Everyone wanted to turn pro on that team. Everyone wanted to have a professional career. And a lot of us treated it a lot more like an individual sport than we did a team sport at the time. Although we did come together at the end of the year and uh, we did have the best team in the country and we were able to win, <coughs> win NC2A. So uh, it was a lot of fun and a great binding moment, but Honest, if I were to be dead honest, it wasn't like uh, I played high school basketball and I still keep in touch with those guys and I'm, I'm actually closer to most of my high school basketball team than I am to a lot of my college golf team, believe it or not. Um, because of that individual sport side of things, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was a bit different. Miller, I'm curious as you think about the folks that you manage, the, those who report to you, those who inform you about decisions, how much of your attention is being paid to making sure they're uh, collaborative, that the teamwork piece is a big part of, of what you do? I suspect all of them are driven in some ways. And sure. that when you bring new hires into the, to the headquarters in Ponte Vedra, they're looking to, 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 to rise to the top. Have you some particular practices that you've instilled to, to make sure collaboration and teamwork are a big part of what you do? Well, I think it, to me, that's all about communication. Right, and communicating with our team members that we're, we're all on the same team. We all have the, the same goal in mind is to make this tour the best it can be, uh, but it is collaborative. We have regular meetings uh, when we're in the office. Um, I share as much as I can about what's going on at the highest level possible. Uh, for instance, we had a, I had a business unit review uh, this past week with uh, Commissioner Monahan. Uh, and that was a, you know, a nice presentation. I took our team through that presentation because I want them to feel good about what we're doing as a team. I think one of the biggest challenges with, with, in today's business world is that the millennials aspire to grow so quickly. And, and I have this conversation all the time. It's just be patient. Keep your head down, work hard, and be patient. It's really, really difficult for them to hear that. 
just and and sometimes they're going to leave the organization because they're not growing at the pace that they feel they should grow. It's that's very challenging. The most common this is my 24th year on the faculty at Richmond. The most common call I get 18 to 24 months after graduation is from one of my very good student former students who says the very same thing. I'm, I'm smarter and harder working right. than everybody around me. I think I'm going to leave the organization. And I deliver them the same advice you do, which yeah. is to say, if you are indeed that smart and that hardworking, someone's going to notice it at some point. You right. join this firm for a reason. I think you should probably stick it out another six to nine months. We're, we're delivering right. the same message over and over. And they are driven, and they're hardworking. Right. And you're finding opportunities, I'm sure, for them to, to blossom within that organization. But yeah. retention has become a challenge. It is a challenge. And for me, if that, if that individual wants to grow and, and stay within our organization, I'm 100% OK moving them into a role that's not necessarily on our tour yeah. so that they can grow and stay within the you know, PGA Tour family. And I can't tell you how many former guests in this series have talked about the importance of lateral moves early in, an or early in a career just as, as a platform for rising later through the organization. Sure. Uh, it's, it's one of the, it's another, another uh, dose of humility, if you will. Jim, I'm curious about uh, your perspective on the family business. Your son actually caddied for you last week down in, uh, how did it go? Pretty well, pretty well. So my caddy, uh, my caddy had a, slipped and fell on the porch last week at, uh, at the golf course, uh, hurt his hip. Uh, it was very apparent that afternoon on Thursday that he was not going to be able to caddy the next day. And I quickly started texting my wife during the pro-am that uh, I needed my replacement to fly in. So my son flew in Friday morning and caddy for me for three days. So uh, just a lot of fun. I know my son had a great time, but uh, having a, a super relationship with my family and, and both my son and daughter, it was really rewarding for me as a father. I had a hundred times more fun than he did having him on the bag, him kind of being inside the ropes, seeing the decisions that were made. Uh, how I went about my business and, and, and played golf for a living. And, and it was, I think, he enjoyed it. The first day he said, I can't believe how fast everything went. Like, how fast you got a yardage, how fast you made a decision, how fast it went off, how quickly we had to get out of the way for the next player to play. He said, it's just when you're watching outside the ropes, I'm standing around. Like, it seems like it takes forever. But inside, it's more of a fast-paced. And, and it was fun to just have him there by my side. And uh, we played well, which is a icing on the cake. But if we would have finished towards the end of the field, I still would have had a great time. There's a slice of uh, the academic literature around naturalistic decision making. Gary Klein, others have followed firefighters around to try to figure out how they process things so rapidly. Golf has a little bit more of a deliberate pace. I think we have a little more time than they do. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Just the time, a little bit. I really wanted to ask you. No one's, you know, we're not going to die either, so it works out pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I really wanted to ask you about your longtime partnership with your your regular caddy, Mike Cowan. If if my math is right, you might have been in your late 20s and he in his early 50s uh, when you first partnered up 22 or 23 years ago, Jim. Does that sound about right? Uh, that's right. It was about 22 and a half. I was 29 when, when I hired Mike. And he would have been 51 or something along those lines? Uh, about 50, 51. Yeah. What made it work then? What still makes it work 22 years later? He's 73 now? He's 73. Um, so quite amazing. He can still tote a 30-pound sack around every day. Um, you know, I, I guess he, he's very easy to get along with. Uh, everyone likes Mike. Um, I guess the best compliments I could pay him as a caddy are that he really loves what he does for a living. He likes the caddy. He li loves the game, loves being in the caddy yard, loves being with the guys, and, and just loves showing up for work every day. So to be around someone that enjoys what they do uh, makes my job a lot easier. Um, the next, I would say that he's the same person on the bag whether we're playing poorly or playing well. So shooting 58 or 82, he's basically the same guy. Um, and so I can't, I can't stress how many times I've seen caddies uh, behind their players back when they hit a bad shot, missed a putt, and you, you know, they're flinching, grimacing. You can tell, and, I, and it's a mental note, like, well, I'd never hire him. You know, I just, um, Mike's the same person, and, and so I appreciate it. And uh, he works hard. You know, he, he, like I said, he loves to come to work, works hard. Uh, we've got a great relationship. And, uh, for years, my family traveled with me full time, and I spent more time with my caddy than I did with my family because I was at the golf course, you know, for eight to ten hours a day at times. Uh, you sleep for eight hours. Uh, I'm not seeing my family quite as much as I'm seeing my caddy, so uh, it, it really needs to be someone that you get along well with. But you keep calling him Mike. I mean, let's be honest. Affectionately, he's Everyone known knows as Fluff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
I didn't feel like I knew him well enough when I hired him to call him Fluff, so I started calling him Mike, and it's just always stuck. Love what you said about his passion for his work, and really that's what, what really drives the best of, of, in any work organization, those who are passionate about the work will, will do what it takes to, to get it done. You found a passion relatively early in your career for the undergraduates here. It could take a few years to find their passion. What advice might you have for them about navigating early career until you discover your passions? Well, for me, I knew my passion was in sport, right? And how did I get the most experience possible? I worked for an agency uh, on a myriad of projects, whether it was NASCAR, baseball, uh, golf. Um, and, and I knew I wanted to work for uh, a major sports property. But for me, I wasn't willing to move to New York City where Major League Baseball, NFL, they're all based there. And I was able to latch on to the PGA Tour uh, and I knew it was going to take time. Uh, I probably you know, sent my resume, I don't know, probably 10 times. Um, I, I interned, made connections. It's all about staying in touch with people. And I was fortunate to catch a break. And I started in the corporate marketing department you know, just over 21 years ago. Um, and I'm fortunate that I kept my head down. And I think I worked hard and was able to grow within the organization. Continuing to make connections, when Tim Fincham was here, I recall one of our undergraduates boldly approaching uh, the commissioner. He's a graduate of this university. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, and then I remember reading six months later a, an article on the, the front of the webpage for the university that said this young person was landed an internship ah. because she was bold enough to approach the commissioner uh, at the time, and, and right. one thing led to another. So those kinds of connections can happen. So careful, someone's going to hit you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what he invited them to do. Yeah. Um, that's okay. So maybe we've got two minutes, uh, one more time for a fun story, Jim, uh, one that I discovered uh, early in your career, 1994. So I left Pebble in, uh, in uh, August of 93, and six months later, you're going to play in the Pro-Am, February of 94. Uh, this is the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am at that time using three, uh, some, some of the different golf courses. My understanding is you wanted to go scout Poppy Hills. You hadn't seen it before, and you arrived on the first tee, and Peter Jacobson was there with, with three others. Do you remember who else was standing on the tee and what it meant to you in terms of maybe now I've, I've reached the big yeah, leagues? Yeah, let me see here. Uh, it was, I think, Huey Lewis, Jack Lemon, and John Denver. And so I had played wow. with Jake the week before in Phoenix, just met him. You, you were new Fluff on tour. was on the bag for Jake. For Jacobson. Uh, and I showed up at Poppy, and there was a foursome going off one. You know, I walked down to the first tee, Jake was there, he invited me to play, and so in my yardage book, I kind of wrote, like, here's the three guys I played with today, you know, John Denver, Jack Lemon, and Huey Lewis, and, uh, and to this day, I still see Huey, you know, every year at the AT&T, we sit around and talk, and, you know, that introduction came from Jake, um, but just, yeah, you kind of pinch yourself and think, you know, kind of an amazing group of folks. I, I think the most wonderful thing about this game, and for, for those students that are here that don't play, I would invite you to try. Uh, it's gonna become such a useful tool in business in any walk of life. The greatest thing about my sport and about my job is that I meet amazing people from all walks of life, whether it's business, entertainment, sports, you name it, the vehicle that draws us together is golf. And you're gonna use that vehicle through business, uh, whether it's uh, entertaining clients, whether it's your boss inviting you to go to the golf course to just have a little knowledge, just an ability to get around the golf course and enjoy a day and socialize is going to uh, give you the ability to get a leg up in business, to close a deal, to get a promotion, uh, or maybe just hold your job, whatever it may be. Um, it's going to be a useful tool for you. So if you don't play golf, I invite you to try because if you enter the business world, it will come up someday. You're talking about pinching yourself when those three were on the tee. I pinched myself when I heard Miller, Brady, and Jim Furyk were coming today. Thank you very much for a really insightful hour. You've offered so many lessons to our students in the business community. Really grateful to, well, to both of you. We're appreciative to be here. The last thing I would say is that um, whether you play golf or not, I would encourage everyone to come out and support the tournament this week because it does raise money for charity. It's a great community event. Uh, we probably have one of the strongest fields we've had all year, and it's going to be a lot of fun out there. So uh, if you can make it, we'd love to see you. My only regret is that we didn't get to cover First Tee, which I know is a passion for, for each of you. We will do that uh, at some point, make sure whether it's Sandy Williamson or Fred Tattersall or somebody else who's sure. involved with First Tee, we'll, we'll highlight that in a future event. Thank you both very Thanks. much. To all of you, we have not yet announced 2022's lineup. We are working on that. 
Uh, at this point, I want to uh, convey my thanks to PNC for its continued sponsorship, Chamber RVA for its continued support of, of what we do here. There are more and more events coming to the Robin School across the university, uh, a bunch of sporting events uh, as well. So please don't be strangers to campus, those of you who are uh, visiting from elsewhere. Great to see so many alumni here uh, as well. Uh, some of our students have a nine o'clock class maybe, so I should probably let don't them go. Don't be late. Thank you very much for coming out, appreciate it. Thank you guys.